try to come up with another illustration, and, and this one is just the money, so i got to go back to it. haven't used it in, in about four years. Um, I was coming home late, late, late one evening uh, in the literally middle of nowhere in Siberia on a bus. And it's a uh, trolleybus. It's, a, it's like an electric bus that we have here in the city, you know, with the forks. And, uh, and an accordion bus, so double, double wide. We're crammed in there. It's about 30 below, middle of winter, pitch black, just, just rumbling along. All the windows are frozen shut. We have absolutely no idea where we're going. And, and we're just absolutely wedged in there. And there's so many people on the bus. This is the last bus to get back from one city to another. So everyone is just wedged in here, you know, close fellowship. And you have to breathe in tandem like this because there's so many people. Well, how these buses were designed because the roads are so rough is that when there's power loss, uh, the brakes engage automatically. Uh, and so it was pretty rough. There's this ice all over the roads. We're sort of in the, um, the outskirts of uh, Novosibirsk where I was living. And uh, there, we hit a bump, and the forks had come off of the, the cables overhead. Bus lost power, so the brakes lock up. So far, so good, except we were on ice. And so this entire accordion bus just starts, you know, doing a 360, which becomes a 720. Bus driver was a maniac to begin with, so going way too fast. So we're across this main intersection in a little lot of cars, just skidding out of the way. And we're just two turns and into a snowbank. Um, but it was like an automatic airbag because everyone's in their winter coats and all stuck together. So we're like, huh, I wonder what that was. Um, windows are frozen shut and, and we're not sure where we're going or, or what happened or anything. And the bus driver gets on, you know, he gets out, he looks at it, he comes back about five minutes, he gets on the microphone and says, guys, if you want to get home, everyone off the bus, we got to push it back, you know, back online. And everyone's going, you, this, the 20 ton bus, there's only about a hundred of us. There's, there's no way this is going to happen. Um, but we all got off the bus, and he's saying, if we don't have power for the bus, we're, we're not going anywhere. Now, we can push the bus all the way back to all the stops, and that's going to take like eight months. Or you can try and walk home from here, and that's going to take at least eight hours. Or we can all push and try and get the bus online. And so it was kind of a no-brainer. So we all got together. It took us about 40 minutes, and we finally pushed this bus all the way across this intersection. The ice helped. But once you get the thing moving, it's really hard to stop on the ice. And so we kept overshooting shooting and undershooting and um, compressing some cars and whatever. It's, I'm sure the city paid for it. But we, um, we finally got it online. The, the power came on and, and we're, we're good to go. Now, now, we could have looked at the situation and said, there's all of these people and they all uh, have different expectations in terms of going home. Everyone could have just, you know, their own best interest. Hey, I can do this. I've got feet. I can get home. But it just wasn't going to work that night. Or, or we could say, you know, there's enough of us here. We got the bus going. We could just keep on pushing this thing. But again, you can see how ridiculous that is. That's not, not how buses work. Or we could see the, the one way this thing works. It's a bus. It needs power. Once it has power, it doesn't matter how many of us there are. It's going to take us right to the destination. Okay, it's a simple illustration, but, but I'm using this in regard to the gospel. In a sense of, I think we all know life as we live it, as it comes to us. This is my life. This is my ability to live life as I think it should be lived. I'm the captain of my own destiny. I, I have power. I have resources. And so the American dream, I pull myself up by my bootstraps. I, I live fully and I achieve these goals. But 
then the rest of life hits and we realize we're not the person we thought we were. Things don't happen the way they should. There isn't the justice I expect, at least of others or even of me. The inconsistencies build up. We see that the system's broken, but it's not the system, it's me. And that's really the gospel where we come to the end of ourselves. I cannot do this. I don't have enough power. It isn't going to happen. And we accept God's offer. The gospel is very, very simple. Our creator made us. We decided, thank you. I've got this now. I'll do it my own way. We've disconnected ourselves from a power source. And so we're dying. We've disconnected ourselves from the main purpose for which we're made. So we're going against the grain and it doesn't make sense. And the consequences for going against our maker, because he loves us, he takes every one of us very personally. When we harm one another, that's an intimate harm he takes personally. There's consequences for that. And it's a debt we can never pay. That's the simple message of life. That's where we find ourselves. The gospel is this. The bad news is we could never pay that debt. We could never rehook up the lifeline. We could never make it all right. If we live the rest of our lives perfectly, it wouldn't even come close. That's the bad news. The good news is God in his love did not allow just justice to happen, circumstances to play out the way they should, and everyone gets what they deserve. What they deserve. But in his love, he took the consequences upon himself. He removed what we couldn't so the lifeline can be reestablished. So that we can not deal with the consequences from our, from our sin but the consequences of his love and his forgiveness and his mercy being um, worked out in our life. That's the simple gospel message. Well, we're beginning a series on the book of Romans. And for those of you not, not familiar with this book, this is sort of the main New Testament book that deals with the gospel. And it may, here we go, Power Broker. We'll see the, the title in just a second. Uh, why are we studying the gospel if it's something so simple, if it's something we all know about? I'm lost, God found me, and now it's all different. Pretty simple, no need to belabor it. But I think what we tend to do, and Jordan alluded to this, or actually you didn't allude, you just you nailed it, but um, it, it's, it's a truth that's, that we hear so much it's hard to, hard to, to see. Um, for the person that has nothing to lose, I come to the end of myself, the gospel is nothing but good news. Because it's only life, it's only hope, it's only doing it differently, better. It's only engaging with a life that we're meant to live. But for those of us in Christ who have, con- who have moved forward from there and, and, and worked a whole life together, now what God asks of us, it costs us and it's more difficult. Now the agendas and the operating systems where we used to do life, they're still operating. And if we're honest, sometimes we have to admit not a whole lot has changed. And so if the gospel is this empowering, this liberating, this freeing, life-changing thing that is supposed to literally make all the difference in the world, how come the church looks pretty much like the world? And those are good statistics and those are bad statistics. But there isn't so much an appreciable difference when you average everything out. So where is the life? Where is the power? What is going on? That's why we want to look at the book of Romans. That's why we're going to spend serious time in here. Now, Romans was, was the um, last major book that Paul wrote. Uh, he wrote some, um, uh, some personal letters, Timothy Titus, uh, just toward the end of his life. But really, this is at the end of his ministry. 
One of the first things that he wrote was Galatians, the Gospels all, what does it mean to be Jew, Gentile, and he's wrestling. 25 plus years have passed. And now for the first time, God is able to use him to write the full gospel story for us. Not just in the trenches, how it looks as Paul encounters it as he's hooking and jabbing with churches, but now looking back on a whole life, looking back at cost, he's saying, this really is the message. See, the book of Romans is a summary of all of Paul's theology. Paul had decided that God had used him in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Greek-speaking world, and, and now God wanted to use him in the Latin-speaking world, on the other side of Italy. So he'd wrapped up his ministry. He was planning on just saying, I'm going to be a missionary again. Good missionary works himself out of a job. So he's going to where the gospel has been preached. And he wants to use the church in Rome, the capital of the empire, as his springboard, as his sending church, as his platform. So he writes this letter to say, this is who I am. This is the gospel I preach. This is how God has worked in you and worked in me. And this is what we can do together, continuing with the plan of God. You see, Paul wasn't able to write this because his life hadn't been formed to the extent that it needed to be. See, he hadn't suffered. He hadn't had enough of pride and the answers and everything from which he had a huge hangover for many years as the perfect Jew and persecutor. Uh, that hadn't been worked out of his, his life. We read about many sufferings and struggles of Paul, but they only scratched the surface. Uh, for older folks here, remember the movie The Jazz Singer? Love on the rocks. Can you die? I'm sorry, I'll spare you. Um, but, but it's a sense of he, wanted to be a, he didn't want to be following in his father's plans for his life, this Jewish guy. He wanted to be a jazz singer. And it was anathema to his dad. And so you're dead to me. What do you think happened to Paul? His grandfather was a Pharisee. His father was a Pharisee. Paul got a scholarship to study under the greatest Pharisee ever, Gamaliel. And he returns home and he says, guess what? We got it all wrong. This is, this is Jesus Christ. He was disinherited. They had a funeral for him. He was kicked out of his family. We don't read about that. We only see it in between the lines. So Paul was bearing the cost of his faith personally. He was bearing the cost of his faith throughout all of these years. And he said, even though I'm beaten down, even though I'm discouraged, even though I don't have all the answers, even though I feel like giving up, I know there is a greater power at work in me because I see it, because I live it, because I feel it, because God has it at work changing me. And toward the end of his life, he could see there is more hope. There's more liberty. There's more freedom than ever before. Even though from an outer perspective, we could say, dude, your, your life is going to come to uh, an abrupt end pretty quickly here. Very, very different perspective. And so from this softer place, from this more broken place, from this place of liberty, God is able to communicate broadband to us in the book of Romans what actually is the gospel. Because I know what I do, I take the gospel, I make it something else, I run with it. See, I have a nasty habit of having to earn, having to justify. Okay, yes, yes, God, I, I enter in through grace. Thank you. Now I've got to earn my position. Now I've got to continually maintain my status with you, God, or, or with others. I, I've got to work. I've got to keep the fire going. I've got to do this. I didn't have my quiet time today. And I take what is a free gift for my liberation, and I become a slave all over again. Now, I change the names. Discipline, discipleship, and, and faithfulness, and stewardship, and, and prayer, and accountability. And all of these things are good and necessary and have their place. But so often in our desire to become, we put the cart before the horse. And rather a gospel that is empowered from the past sacrifice of Christ, I have a gospel that needs to be maintained by my next sacrifice for God. 
And they are completely different things. One is life and one is death. Three quick things looking at Romans. I'm going to amaze you. This is just the intro. Power doesn't come from the gospel in our life, but from the life in our gospel. Apologies to Mae West. Um, It's not the gospel in our life. I do this gospel God part of my life. And if I have enough of these pieces in place, a lot of these movers, that's going to affect the rest of life. Where I read the Bible more. I pray more. I, I want to give more. These are good things. But it's not going to happen. The transformation we were made for, we long for, it's not going to happen just by adding more gospel elements to our life. Now, now let me be very, very clear. There is no neutrality. There is a world system that is against us. There is one, an evil one who, who seeks our downfall. There is eternity literally at stake. Every day, every choice is a cosmic drama. We don't see the vitality. We don't see the necessity of every choice that we make. But, but all, of this, all of this is playing out and all of it is unto a transformation. These are elements that aid us in that. These are elements that help us to swim against the tide. But they're not the source of our power. In the same way that the source of our power wasn't us pushing the bus back online. It was the power that, that got the bus going. That's the power of the gospel. Three quick things. The gospel is God's divine answer to human need. Jump right in. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as his earthly life, as to his earthly life, had descended to David. And as through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a human element. There are real people, right? We're real people. We have real questions. We have real scars, real needs, real vulnerabilities. God enters exactly where we live, just like the incarnation with Christ. But it is the divine answer. It's the divine response to our human predicament. So often we flip it around and thereafter it's a human response to God's offer. There is a role. There's a place for that, but it cannot be primary. Second thing. Whoa, he's on a second point already. How did he do that? It's amazing. PowerPoint. Romans 1.8. This is the first 17 verses I encourage you to read on your own. Romans chapter 1. Um, this just sets it up. Secondly, the gospel changes lives in ways that others notice. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Paul had never been to this church. His two main ministry partners, this husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, the dynamic duel, they were Jews that got booted out of Rome. There was this lottery scheme that these Jewish evangelists were doing. And Claudius, the Roman Empire, had bought into it. And, and it, was like, it was a huge Ponzi scheme. And all these Roman noblemen lost all sorts of money in it. And so Claudius, to cover himself, said, it's all the Jewish evangelists' fault. They did it, even though I lost lots of state money in this thing as well. And so all Jews have to be banished from Rome. So they all got booted out. That's where Paul met these people. They had a wonderful ministry. And Priscilla and Claudius and all the other Jews that got kicked out were telling everyone continuously, the brothers and sisters, these Gentiles, these pork-eating, God-loving people back in Rome, they, they're taking care of business. They're walking it out. They're getting persecuted more than any of us. They're literally in the belly of the beast and their faith is alive and it's raw. And I I get back there just to be encouraged because their lives were changed in a way that everyone, enemies and friends, could see. How do people speak about Bethel in the city? Do they speak about a list of events that we do? A travelogue? 
Do they speak about glory days in the past? Do they speak about personal relationships? Do they speak about life-changing faith? Because in any institution we talk about, any family, any individual, we can lay out a litany of that which remains from the past. This is the unfinished business. This is the the residual sin that we're all working through. And this is a reality. And we can talk about it because it's true. Or we could talk about this is the inbreaking of faith. This is the inbreaking of a new way of relating to one another, of talking about one another, of, of clinging to what is good, abhorring what is evil, of, of working the gospel through. See, the only way people know about Bethel is people either hear or, or they hear about it. And it's a choice of, of what we hear about. And, and I know with myself, I look at the sin that remains so much more than the grace which is inbreaking. And it's a natural tendency for all of us. But the power of the gospel is in the newness that God is bringing, not the residual that we're still wrestling with and working through. That's how God brings it. That's how God um, makes it important to us. That's how God really brings the choice and the value. But if the gospel is real, do we focus on the source of the power or do we focus on the, on the minority report? And finally, and really what I want to end on is this. Gospel is the power of God for real life. Most famous verse from Romans 1, perhaps. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You know, um, I looked, you know, because I'm a scholar, I'm supposed to do this. I looked in the Greek. You know the word everyone? You know what it means? You know what the word is in Greek? Everyone. Um, To everyone who believes... First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And Paul's going to lay out the priority and how God worked with an individual and a family and a nation and a dynasty to reach the whole world because it's up close and personal is how people see love. So we're going to look at that in Romans, but we'll skip over it for right now. For in the gospel, the righteousness, the rightness, the perfectness, the holiness, all that is good, all that should be, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Okay, two quick things here. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, most of us have heard this, if we've heard it preached at all, is we shouldn't be embarrassed to be a Christian. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. We shouldn't be uh, kind of just not saying anything when people are talking smack about the church or Jesus or, or, or whatever, that we should be uh, bold in our faith and witnessing. That's not really what this is saying. Now, there's plenty of places in Scripture that say, you know, you need to be bold. You need to step up there. You know, if you're ashamed of God, Jesus might be a little ashamed, you know, of you when he, when he comes back. It's sort of saying, look, it holds together. This is not what it's saying. It's this, um, for you, for you uh, grammarians out there, it's called a litotes. It's a, a figure of speech which states the opposite. He's not saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's saying, I glory in it. What's the opposite of shame? Shame is you don't want anyone to know and you're covering up, right? The opposite of that is I want everyone to know and I'm revealing. And so Paul is saying, I glory in the gospel. It's not just... I'm a worm, I suck, I'm horrible, I'm bad, I'm just glad to be led in the kingdom, and my whole life is an empty vessel to be a conduit to give glory to God. Have you heard that? It's not true. What's missing? You are. The one that God loves and died for and has redeemed and rejoices over, you're not in that equation, okay? You're left out. Yes, we bring glory to God by glorying in God. 
That our lives would be seen as a glory, as, as a manifestation of, we talk about God's glory, what does it look like? It looks like transformation, it looks like forgiveness, it looks like strength and weakness, it looks like surrender, it looks like trust. It looks like new life. And so it's not a matter of, I just need to talk more about Jesus or carry a bigger Bible so people can intuit that I'm a Christian by the size of the handle on my case or or whatever. It's not talking about that at all. It's saying the way we bring glory to God is we glory in him. We exalt in him. We're deliberate. And it's natural and it's not weird. And it's possible because of the second thing I want to look at. The very last quote here, it's from um, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, whatever, um, verse... uh, it's two four, chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. Okay, Paul's quoting this, and this is God getting in people's faith, faith, face a bit and getting in their faith a bit, I guess, as well, saying, look, you're trying to do it on your own, and it's not working. You're trying to do it in your own strength, and that's why things are falling apart. So Paul, knowing that, uses this verse. Two ways to understand it, and I promise you, um, you can put the earbuds back in. One way of understanding it is this, the righteous will live by faith, and I use the translation that's held by most versions, although a few modern ones depart. What that means is the righteous will live by their faithfulness. The righteous will live by their own faithfulness. In other words, you claim you're righteous, show me the money, prove it. You say you're a God person, you've got to do a lot of God things to convince me. So it's your faithfulness that now is required if you're going to call yourself righteous. If you're in the righteous category, you better maintain it by continuing to be righteous. That's a tall order, and that's a hard to separate from slavery, really, because we're going to mess up. My righteousness, no matter how good it is, it's going to, it's going to end. I think a better way of understanding it, because the emphasis is on your righteousness, is this, the righteous by faith will live. Look, see, because the emphasis is on the righteous by my faithfulness, my finished sacrifice, my promise, my completion. This is what God's saying. You were made righteous because of me, and guess what? It's a done deal. I did this. You just need to receive it. You can't mess it up. I've taken it out of your hands because you're going to screw it up. I did it already. That's the gospel. And so rather than being, I've claimed that I'm righteous in Christ and I believe these things and now I have to make it so by earning it or maintaining it or cultivating it or working this level by my faithfulness, that's terrifying. Because at least in 47 years, I know my track record. It's consistent. Just remember, consistency is only a virtue if you're not a sinner. But the righteous by my faithfulness, the righteous by faith, God did that for me. And now the emphasis is we'll live. We'll live fully. We'll live as intended. We'll live freely. We'll be able to glory. We'll, we'll not be a matter of, gee, I wonder if the world is like the church. There is a night and day difference because it is God's life in me moving forward, not me trying to be a better bill with God's strength. I'm going to close by reading this, and this is the difference between a quantitative Christian life and a qualitative life. Um, read this, got a blog, this is old, this is about three or four years old, but it's been making its rounds again. And um, I'm just going to caveat this, and the person does as well, writing this. This is not taking a shot at anything in the church. This is saying this is a good thing that, that she grew up with in the church, but it turned in terms of how we approach Christ. I'm just going to read this out. 
He's talking about uh, the True Love Waits, which is a program of abstinence, and it's usually associated with a purity ring. It's where a girl will get a ring saying, I, I pledge to keep myself pure until marriage. Uh, sometimes fathers would get, it, get you know, say, hey, we're, we're kind of in a covenant and all of this. It's all good. This is somebody writing about that called I Don't Wait Anymore. When I was 16, I got a purity ring, and when I was 25, I took it off. I didn't tell anyone I was doing it. It wasn't a statement or an emotional thing. I just slipped it off my finger that day before tucking away in a box, ran my finger around the words on the familiar gold band. True love waits. Waits. What's it waiting for anyway? I had my reasons for deciding not to wear it anymore. Other people might have other reasons. It's a graveyard of hearts, this place where single church girls crash into their late 20s and early 30s. Churches see the symptoms. They scramble, reach out to the ever-growing young adult singles crowd who feels alienated by family-oriented services. But there's something bigger behind that, much bigger. There are a lot of girls out there who don't know who God is anymore. The God of their youth group years just isn't working out. Back then... That God said to wait for sex until they're married, until he brings the right man along for a husband. They signed a card, put it on the altar, and pledged to wait. And wait they did, and waited, and waited, and waited. Some of them have prayed their whole lives for a husband, and he hasn't shown up. They've heard the advice to be the woman God has made you to be, focus on that, and then the husband will come. They've read Lady in Waiting, gotten super involved in church, honed their skills, and still they wait. More than a decade ago, a youth leader handed them a photocopied poem in Sunday school written to them from God that said, the reason you don't have anyone yet is because you're not fully satisfied in me. You have to be satisfied with me, and then when you least expect it, I'll bring the person I meant for you. And the girls see it posted on their bulletin boards from time to time. You're right, God. They say, we're not satisfied in you yet. We'll put you first, then you can bring a husband in your timing. But many of them, if they're honest, will tell you that time has passed and it's wrecking their view of God. If this is who God's supposed to be, then he's tragically late. So some decide to chuck lady in waiting out the window, possibly their virginity with it. Church goes next, and God might go next too if he doesn't answer these prayers after they've held up their end of the bargain. Why would he answer any others? Whether it was a fault of their leaders or a fault of the girl of us girls or both, a tragedy happened back then. A lot of girl, girls were sold on a deal and not on a savior. I had that poem on my bulletin board all through high school, the one where God was telling me to fall in love with him first, then I'd be able to fall in love with a husband later. Who wrote that poem anyway? Pretty sure it wasn't God. When Jesus was here on earth, the crowds would follow him because they saw he gave good things. But that's not what he wanted. He wanted their hearts for himself. So he would turn to them and say things like, if you don't love me so much that every other relationship in comparison is going to look like hate, you can't follow me. Sounds a lot different from the poem. Christ is the source of everything we need and the giver of all good gifts. But in telling people about him, it's possible we sold them on a solution for life's problems and not life itself. That's the gospel. It's not a solution for life's problems. It is life itself. What if we as girls had learned early on that having him was everything, not a means to the life we think he would want us to have? If we'd learned we don't abstain from sex because we're waiting, we abstain because we love him. If I'd had on my bulletin board, fall in love with Jesus, period. That's it, bottom line. That's everything you need to know to work toward to put your hope in. It's a non-contingent. If I'd learned who he is, what he wants to give him everything, not to wait so that one day I could have my everything. If I'd learned that it's not bad to pray for a husband, but that my greater prayer would be for him to spend my life as he chooses for his glory. 
If we as believers make that our message, things could be drastically, drastically different for a lot of girls wondering why the God they think they've learned to follow doesn't compute. It doesn't necessarily stop the desire for a husband or the end of all feelings of loneliness, but it does show a God who provides, loves, and gives infinite purpose, even when in this situation it might be singleness, rather than a God who categorically denies some who pray for husbands while seemingly giving freely to others. It shows that while marriage is good, he is still the greater goal. Don't think I've done this perfectly. I'd be deceiving you. Um, If I hadn't, I'd made mistakes, yada, yada, yada. I lived like I was waiting for something. And that's why I slipped the ring off my finger that day. It wasn't that I wanted to sleep with people. I haven't. It wasn't a slap to true love waits or to anyone who wears a purity ring. Certainly not. Saving sex for marriage is good in his design. It's just that I didn't want to wait anymore. I didn't want to live like I was waiting on anyone to get here or to get on with life. I already have him and he is everything. She ends with a quote from uh, J.C. Ryle. Follow Christ for his own sake, if you follow him at all. And that is the gospel. It's not a solution to life's problems. It's not a, uh, a hope to fill in a lack that may be there. It's not, if you do this, then there's that. But the gospel is life itself. And any way we live, any way we approach it that is less than that is robbing ourselves of life and is robbing God of glory because we're unable to fully glorify glory in a God who isn't fully God. And so what we're going to be looking at in the book of Romans is the gospel, myself first and foremost, and the rest of us, the gospel we thought we knew, how we've been applying it, and the ultimate power, the ultimate life, the ultimate freedom, the one another that God has for us already completely, fully offered in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that not only have you done everything to make us your own, but this is your desire. This is what you long for. This is what you, you, you boast on. And rejoice over. And I pray, Father, steps along the way as we look at where we have fallen down last time. Where we're afraid we'll fall down next time. Things that have said that have hurt and stung and remained. Things that have long been scarred over tissue that new growth can't happen. Whatever the case may be, Father, would you soften our hearts. May life not be the sun that hardens the wax. but May it be the S-O-N sun that melts the clay. That we'd be more supple, more open, more usable, more available to you. As we fall more in love with you as you are, not as we suppose you to be. Show yourself to us. Christ's name we pray. Amen. We stand up together as we sing about uh, this gospel.
as we close, actually before, Bill's going to come close us out. But i got to let you know about one thing. I know you realize that Halloween is around the corner. Guess what's after that? Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah, the all-time holiday of all because uh, that's when Christ came to the earth. And I just got to let you know that we're going to do it big this year. We're having a choir, and you are all invited. No experience necessary, but we've got a table in the back. Just would love to see you sign up real quick because rehearsals start next week. So I had to get out there. Out there. Hope that's okay. All right, so join us. Love to have you there. Absolutely. Um, just really, really appreciate these guys. What you don't know is this is actually the third iteration of instruments that they were on um, and practicing different uh, people calling in sick and emergencies and switching around. Just their willingness to say, hey, whatever it takes, we'll do it, make it happen worship-wise. But Amen. grateful. And, uh, and it's nice having this bum back as well. But anyway, call, call back from college. So. Um, like to invite our prayer counselors forward uh, again. Where where this happens, uh, we've had experience of worship. Uh, we've heard some truth from God's word. What's for me? Quickly forget about what's from God. Pray it takes root. But where this is worked through is in prayer of saying, God, let's put feet on the list. Let's continue to really bring uh, Your Spirit to bear in our lives. And so, a continuation of our worship worship services, we want to offer opportunity to pray for anyone and everyone here after service. If you'd like to hear more, how you can get involved, all that's going on. There's couches right through those doors. People love to talk with you, uh, connect you, hook you up. Lovely couple right there. Uh, Chris and Deidre, yay! Uh, and um, as well, uh, please be at the prayer meeting tonight. It's going to be uh, well beyond an hour of power and connecting to God as a body. want to leave you with this verse. And all the difference in the world lies in this, and it's a focus on life. Our hope, our confidence is this. The righteous by my faithfulness will live, live freely, live fully. The righteous, those who are righteous by the faithfulness of God will live. Not in the great by and by, right here, right now, will live. And this is underwritten by God. He is our hope. He is our grace. Go to do and to be His will. And I'll see you here next week. Take care.